the initial tech boom, if you will, that we had in New Orleans was uh, was what a lot of people attribute to post Katrina uh, revitalization, right? So post Hurricane Katrina, right? There was a huge washout, right? A lot of damage, and then a lot of stuff started getting fixed. The city started bouncing back and coming back. Um, and you know, and on the tail end of that, right, cost of living was very low, uh, high cultural epicenter, you know, and uh, and so it became this magnet for a lot of people. Welcome everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, managing partner of Interplay. On this podcast, I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. Today we have Hal Calais on the show. He's the managing partner and CIO of Calais Capital. They are based in southern Louisiana, uh, and Calais Capital makes venture investments in technology companies in the region, in the South generally, and also focusing more exclusively on the Mississippi River Delta region. Hal is interestingly from a multi-generational family of entrepreneurs in Louisiana. He's very connected to the geography, and he's, he, he is very much helping to catalyze entrepreneurship in the region. I think he's playing a crucial role in bringing New Orleans up on the startup side of the world. I thought this was a really unique conversation, a way to see into a very nascent ecosystem and get a sense of what it's like in the earlier days, earlier days than I experienced when I joined in the New York ecosystem in 2006. During the chat, we discussed the current state of tech, venture, innovation out in New Orleans and beyond. And we talked about how the ecosystem has evolved and changed post-Katrina. We cover what the scene needs to keep growing and much more. I hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Spoke. Spoke is a full-service outsourcing firm providing high-quality, low-cost solutions for all types of operational and back office functions, including customer service, data science, HR, and supply chain management. They help companies scale their operations while keeping down their costs. If you're interested in learning more, visit gospoke.co. All right, welcome, Hal. Hey, Mark, how's it going, man? Doing all right. Thanks for being here. Oh, happy to, happy to be here. All right, so let's dive in. I, I think it's good to baseline the conversation. Would you give everyone listening an overview of Kelly Capital so they have a little sense of what you guys yeah. do and what you focus on? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, Kelly Capital, we are a, um, an alternative asset manager. Um, we, uh, we specialize and really focus our attention around uh, young companies, typically in the seed, Series A, uh, Series B uh, kind of categories. And, um, you know, we're uh, investing kind of um, programmatically and, uh, you know, have been doing so for about, uh, I guess, seven years, eight years now. That's great. Now, and, and you guys are based just outside New Orleans? Are, is the office in New Orleans or how are you guys structured? Yeah, so, um, yeah, so we are, yeah, so I guess technically we're based in a town called Thibodeau. Uh, and there's an X at the end, so have fun uh, spelling it if you're not from here. It's one of those French things. Um, and, uh, you know, and, you know, but we only have like three of our team here. Um, and, uh, you know, myself being one of them, we're about an hour outside the city. Uh, we've, uh, my brother and Mark uh, are based in New Orleans. Um, they kind of work, uh, you know, out of their house. They, you know, kind of, uh, Mark's got his office uh, in uh, uptown New Orleans. And, you know, it's uh, spent a lot of time there. Okay, perfect. So let's talk about your investing. Uh, what's the typical inve typical investment profile? What type of companies are you looking for? Sure. So uh, yeah, so we 
uh, we view the world as a generalist, right? So we like to look at companies based on metrics uh, and fit within a market. You know, generally the companies we're investing in are growing pretty quickly, um, have a concept and a lot of the groundwork put into place and laid out. Uh, so those that may not be producing revenue, we'll consider them um, based on contracts in the pipeline, uh, validity of the business model. If it's a space and we're really passionate about it, we know a lot about it and we get really excited. Um, but generally it's a lot of the companies are software, mobile, uh, tech enabled services. Uh, we do some e-commerce, we've done some CPG, um, you know, and kind of everything between, um, you know, kind of, I guess, you know, I, I really like, uh, software. I really like software as a service, you know, um, you know, and, uh, you know, we do a lot of direct to consumer, but we do a lot of enterprise as well. Um, it's just kind of a blend, you know, it's really based on the opportunity, the market segment, the market sec, and, um, and kind of, uh, uh, the overall profile of the company and how it's selling into the market. And geographically you're focused locally to you, right? So it's new Orleans, uh, other uh cities. so we're focused really kind of the way we describe it is kind of the perpendicular lines of I-10 and, uh, and the Mississippi river. Right. So think kind of central U.S. and Gulf Coast primarily, you know, we'll go up to uh, Georgia, the Carolinas on occasion, um, you know, but uh, really our, our bread and butter and knitting is kind of the core of the Mississippi River Delta, you know, kind of the whole watershed. Mm -hmm. And is, is most of uh, are most of your deals in that area or, you know, what's the concentration yes. like? Are there cities that you find yourself in other than New Orleans? Yes, yes, uh, we, we do. Um, yeah, so I mean, speaking about like Louisiana, kind of in its own distinct, you know, startup ecosystem uh, kind of thought process, right, is, uh, you know, uh, is that, you know, kind of there's certain bespoke like hubs, right, where there's like a little clustering of deals, right? So it's almost like, you know, you think about San Francisco or New York, and there's like cluster of like segments of the single town, you know, it's kind of how it how it fits together and just Louisiana in a microcosm. Um, you know, we find the same thing happens in Mississippi, same thing happens in Alabama, uh, Florida, parts of Texas, and, you know, all these territories, right, this clustering around the big cities. Um, you know, in Louisiana, just, you know, uh, kind of going back to that example is that, you know, we've got, we've done a bunch of deals out in New Orleans. Uh, we've done one in Lafayette. Um, I've, I've done a deal in, uh, in Alabama. Uh, uh, I don't think I've done any in Mississippi yet. We uh, there's a couple that we're talking to that we're pretty excited about, mm -hmm. um, and uh, there's a few more in, Bur in uh, Alabama, Birmingham, and uh, Mobile areas that are kind of interesting. Um, you know, Alabama has got its own whole market, really well developed and established. Uh, mm -hmm. Same thing goes with parts of Houston and uh, and Austin. Um, you know, bits of San Antonio as well. But you know. We're, we're looking at those markets as well. You know, we view a lot of those more collaborative markets, whereas like we view ourselves, you know, and same thing with Missouri and uh, working with some of the funds there. And, uh, you know, but we view ourselves as kind of more of a lead and primary in some of our home markets. You know, that's kind of the stuff that we aim to lead and really kind of, um, you know, spend a lot of time cultivating relationships and building a, a deal flow there. Got it. And you're typically leading if it's local. That's right. That's right. Yes. And uh, we find that a lot of funds that we work with really like that, you know, because typically we're the small guy, you know, we kind of you know, like to think we punch above our weight class. Right. Um, you know, is that we uh, we work really well with a lot of other funds and, you know, we, we take uh, a market approach. You know, we're members of NBCA. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so we work with a lot of groups that are part of NBCA and that abide or follow a lot of those model documents and structures and all that stuff. So we tend to try and be as middle of the fairway and market as we can. 
um, you know, to, I mean, number one, make sure that the deal is fair for all parties. Um, and, uh, you know, number two is that it's financeable, whether, you know, by additional capital that's syndicated in the round or it's by future rounds of funding, right? We don't want anything bonky going on that's going to prevent somebody else from funding it later. Right. Every VC has got a sales pitch that they give to entrepreneurs. They're, obviously, when they're raising money, they got a sales pitch. But when they give to entrepreneurs and meet them, they're talking about why entrepreneurs should pick them. What's the uh, Calais Capital pitch? Why should entrepreneurs work with you? Well, we're awesome. We'll take you fishing. You know? <laughs> enough There's said. A slogan right, right there. Right. It's enough said. Uh, um, no. So I mean, our, our approach is really, um, you know, and our pitch to the founders is that you know we've we've got a lot of experience and a lot of um, and a pretty wide network, right? Um, you know, between myself uh, and my partners, you know, we've all kind of spent a good bit of time really cultivating, developing relationships. Um, that uh, that really span across our markets and span across time, and you know, and I have a benefit of you know growing up as part of a, a you know entrepreneurial family, um, and uh, really focusing in on uh, you know what it takes and what's required of that, and kind of the entrepreneurial journey, which is you know that, it's a hard journey. You know, our view is that you know, like I, I tell my founders this all the time, you know, I'm I'm not your ideal operator. Right. Like you don't want me being CEO of your business. That's not my skill set. I'm not good at that. Right. What we are good at is we're good at financing. We're good at putting together deals. We're good at working through deals. We're good at setting companies up for exit and, uh, and or strategic follow on or a lot of other um, called strategic transactions, making sure that nothing weird is going on, making sure that everybody's being taken care of. Right. I also tell our founders that my goal is for them to make a whole lot more money than me and eventually become my investors in other funds. Right. And you mentioned the firm comes from a, a long family line of entrepreneurs. Would you tell the story of that? Sure, sure. So uh, I guess technically speaking, I'm fourth generation. Um, my great-grandfather was part of the, um, I guess, the cohort of shrimpers and trappers, uh, you know, in southern uh, Louisiana in the marsh. Um, you know, whenever they discovered oil, he had a boat and uh, the oil company said, hey, we have no idea how to get these supplies or people to these boats because the marshes are terrible and we can't bring people uh -huh. from outside the area to run the marshes. And so, you know, an entire industry was born from that. My great grandfather being one of the early pioneers and having, uh, you know, basically kind of wrapping and creating a business, uh, incorporating it in uh, I think the 1950s. Wow. Um and then uh, my my grandfather was a serial entrepreneur. He started, you know, he went to first in his family to go to college, I believe, and um, he graduated math and electrical engineering. Uh, started a cable TV business. Uh, everybody oh. thought it was crazy. Um, you know, kind of turned out well. Um, you know, uh, and then uh, having a business that cash flowed in good times and bad. Um, you know, allowed him to invest and redeploy the capital into other industries. You know, he ended up getting into the garbage business, uh, buying and uh, uh, buying a couple of different banks. We've had four different commercial banks over the years. Uh, we had a car dealership uh, that one didn't go super awesome, but you know, I, um, you know, we had an electronic store, same thing, didn't do super awesome, but you know, tried. Right. And, um, you know, but on the whole, we've been lucky more often than not. And so I grew up, you know, uh, uh, spending a lot of time with my dad, late hours at the office and going to the cable company and, you know, tinkering with electronics and playing with stuff. And, you know, it was kind of a great experience seeing what it takes and understanding that, you know, um, 
And, uh, and I was just kind of put into a fortunate position where I was able to uh, to really execute and uh, and focus on what I wanted to do. And you know, and I love this work. That's great. Is is the cable brand uh, still around? Is that channel? Uh, it's been purchased twice since then. Uh, so yeah, so the of all those businesses, we have one bank that's kind of left. If you will, everything else we've exited. Okay, what's the bank? So for local, uh, folks, uh, it's a uh, it's not super based. It's uh, called uh, United Community Bank. It's uh, okay. about uh, five hundred million in assets, you know. So, like, not t tiny, but not like not super right. big. Right, and that's New Orleans based. Uh, it's it more of the Bayou, you know. So, uh, okay. we're actually a bigger presence in uh, in Baton Rouge than we do in New Orleans. Okay, right on. Very cool. Okay, and so how did you come from all of that? I mean, I, I can see the entrepreneurial thread, um, but tech venture capital to the different beast, and you're you're in it. So what, what was the what was the transition for you? Yeah, so um, you know it's it's funny you know you don't know what you want to do until you know what you want to do, um, and uh, and for me uh, you know so I, I worked at the bank. I started working at the bank out of high school uh, through college, and um, you know I was always uh, you know I was the guy they put in the back room and say hey you go do math. I said okay I'll go do math. That's fine. Um, you know, they wouldn't let me talk to people right. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it was, hey, it's for the best. It's mutually acceptable, right? It's all parts. Uh, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, so we, uh, um, you know, so really, you know, we, we were selling uh, our boat company, uh, you know, the energy services business in 2013, right? You know, great timing. We we're very lucky. Uh, we sold it uh, that October, October 2013. Um, you know, the you know, oil crashed in November. So, uh, you know, <laughs> Well, pretty good, lot, pretty good yeah. timing. Um, and uh, so we were, we were very lucky. And, um, you know, and so at that time, you know, we were having a liquidity event. I was having a liquidity for the first time in my life. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and I was working at the bank. And, you know, uh, I was also kind of soft talking to a couple of different groups that were trying to recruit me. Um, you know, one, uh, you know, Couple, you know, like they wanted me to move to San Francisco. One wanted me to move to uh, Atlanta. One wanted me to move to uh, um, to New Orleans, uh, and then another one wanted me to build a practice, um, you know, in my in my market, uh, you know, the Bayou region, uh, as I guess what we call it. Um, and so, uh, so you know, so we've, uh, you know, so I guess I was just kind of like, oh, you know, I've got liquidity. Um, I know I want to invest my own money. I know that I don't like a lot of these financial financial advisors. You know, I mean, they, they have a time, they have a place, and they have a, a reason for being. And I get that. You know, I mean, it's it's a, it's a very respectable job. But you know, that's that's not like you know, I'm not a big picture allocator. You know, I, I'm gonna get my hands in the weeds, analyst, and work through stuff. You know, and I spent a lot of time at the bank on automation projects and trying to be innovative from within. And um, you know. And you know, you'd always hit a ceiling, right? It was just a heavily compliant-driven industry. It's much more like utility business than anything else. Hmm. And uh, you know, so it, it just wasn't as super exciting for me. You know, um, even though no, I, I was on a path to be the CEO, but it just it wasn't what I really wanted to do. Um, and you know, some of, some of these opportunities were alluring, and um, and so I thought it was interesting. And so I, you know, you know, went on a couple of interviews, talked, you know, just kind of understanding what was out there. Ultimately, I, I was like, well, you know, taking a step back here, right? I want to, you know, what I learned or what I discovered was I want to own my own business. I want to have some amount of discretionary authority over the capital that I'm investing, right? And I want to leverage my own capital with the capital of others, right? At the very least, initially, it will be other family members. And I feel like I should be paid for that service. 
Um, you know, of course, you know, you give good deals because I'm family, you know, I just want to make sure my, my, my overhead's covered, right? I'm not trying to like kill anybody. I'm more for the capital gains and for the experience and for establishing track record and positioning, right? And so, um, you know, so that's kind of how we started, you know, and, uh, and I pitched my, my brother and my dad and I said, hey, I'd like for you guys to do this with me. Uh, let's form a uh, general partner entity and let's raise a series of limited partnership vehicles and uh, and kind of see what happens, pursue some strategies and be opportunistic and invest our money, raise money from the family. They can pick and choose what they want to do, you know, no pressure, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and it's kind of work and that's, uh, you know, and so over time, right, I mean, initially we started off doing some real estate. We started doing some lending. We started doing all these different things that were like really close to my my original like classical education, if you will. Right. 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 You know, but like the, the interesting thing here or what I think is interesting, right? It's my story. So everything's interesting for me. Right. Um, <laughs> is that uh, is that, you know. There, there was really not a lot of alternative investment companies here. There's not like I can count on one, maybe one and a half hands, you know, how many, uh, how many firms there are in Louisiana that are doing some form of alternative investing. And, uh, you know, that ranges from hedge funds, private equity funds, and a couple of micro VCs. Mm. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, there was a lot of self-discovery, right? Doing this general partnership structure made a lot of sense. You know, I was able to check the boxes for all the things I was looking for. Um, but I hadn't like, what is a fund? How do you run a fund business? I mean, you know, just never saw it, never, ever interacted with it, came across it. And so I had to do a little bit of, uh, call it scrappy figuring it out. And, um, you know, I spent the first, uh, you know, six to nine months or so I was cold calling service providers and I was saying, Hey, you know, I'm starting to fund to pitch me your business. And, you know, they would pitch me their business as fund admins or accountants or law firms to some extent. And I would write down the terms I didn't know what they meant, and I Google them, and that would take me down the Google Google rabbit hole, and I learned the business from the ground up that way. And right. um, you know, and so that's uh, that's kind of how I learned the fun the fun kind of business. Um, but really, going from there, transitioning over to like why tech, right? So kind of a, maybe that answers some of the question of like how I got to like a fund business, but then getting to why tech. So. Over the course of those iterative funds, right, those iterative SPV vehicles and testing strategies, you know, I started doing tech and I started realizing very quickly, man, I love this stuff. And I feel like I was bred for this, you know, but I mean, just similar as the other thing, I didn't have a lot of experience. And when you say doing tech, you just, you're seeing tech deals and started getting interested in them? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And started doing a couple, um, you know, getting hosed on them, you know, doing things right, <laughs> doing things poorly. I mean, like, why the hell, you know, why did I lose money on this? I, you know, I followed this checklist that I found online. I learned all this stuff. And, right. you know, what did I do wrong? And, you know, and, uh, and it's like, you know, it's not necessarily that I did anything wrong. It's that I just didn't understand, you know, the business as as I do today, which is completely night and day. Um, another thing, too, is that it's not enough to just read books and understand what the market is, right, or what pontificators out there with uh, with microphones are saying, hey, you know, venture funds do this. We take bets on only people and that's all that matters. Revenue doesn't matter. This doesn't matter. You know, it's like, eh, you know, it's, a, you know, but but localizing kind of some of the marriage of how do, how do the fundamentals of traditional venture work versus a localized market like ours, where there's not a lot of exposure, there's not a lot of education, 
And there's a handful of groups that seemingly own all of the mouthpieces in the market, right? And so, you know, so really it was kind of this hard learning period that I had to have and uh, figuring out, you know, just how to make this work. And so, you know, I, I, ultimately I ended up meeting uh, one of my partners today, Mark. He, um, you know, he was representing a company that we were investing in and we hit it off. You know, he was a, you know, he's a lawyer and, um, you know, and, and we hit it off. And then all of a sudden we just started looking at a whole bunch of stuff together. You know, he had, he had spent about three years or four years or something at Wilson Cincinnati and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in Palo Alto. And I uh, moved back home to build a practice focused around startups in Louisiana and New Orleans, right? And um, and so since then, I mean, he's done like 500 venture deals, you know, oh, uh, and you know, representing a lot of people in those same market coverage areas, you know, so becoming an expert himself. And so, um, you know, and so kind of his pairing with mine, my experience, his experience, and then my brother uh, also playing a big role in helping us get all of these things into place, you know, really led to the cultivation and development of this, uh, of the strategy that we're, you know, executing on today, right? Which is a very well-refined, very specific and focused strategy around kind of the elements I mentioned earlier, you know, so how do we get there? You know, it's kind of a long story. I'm taking up half the, you know, half this podcast. For that. That's great. It's great. How many years did it take you to go from A to Z on that, to, from amorphous to focused? Yeah, so I realized that investing as a family group had a lot of inherent disadvantages versus investing as a fund. Such as? So yeah, that's, that's a whole other topic into itself, right? Let's do it. Right. So if a fan, you know, most, most of the time, the families and family offices that are doing investing that I've seen, that I've worked with, that I've come across, wait for a lot of inbound deal flow. Right. Okay. And what I've seen is that a lot of times the inbound deal flow isn't always the highest quality. And, uh, and, and a lot of times that deal flow, um, you know, it's just, it's different. Right. Um, also, the companies that a family are looking to invest in and fund aren't always established in the you know, tried and true venture way, right? So sometimes they may have a little weird terms on them. Sometimes they may have this or that. And so it's not always like the most post you funding them fundable by somebody else, right? Because they've been advised by their uncle who runs an accounting shop and, you know, is, uh, is trying to help, trying his best to help him, but he just doesn't know the market. Right, um, right. You know, and so, you know, it just the, the deal channels for family offices are inherently different unless, you know, you're somebody like one of, the, you know, some of these families that are really substantial big names that have teams of people, you know, they do it really well, right? But they run it like a venture fund inside their own shop, right? But that, that's a whole nother lift. So I'd say that like most of the, you know, there's so many family offices out there and a lot of them just, you know, it's just a lot, of, a lot of inconsistencies. And so, you know, whenever I was going and I was talking to a company or looking at a deal, you know, I, you know, just I was always just thinking like, OK, well, you know, if it's a good deal, I'm going to try and do it and I'm going to do my due diligence and this and that. And uh, whereas if you're a fund, you're focusing and you're thinking on it differently. You don't have the time to specialize in it as a family unless you're doing a very specialized family or office oriented strategy. And so, you know, there are, you know, I think this is give and take pros and cons, right? Like a family office by definition should be extremely fast, right? 
And so therefore they should be much more nimble and should be able to deploy capital like that as long as you're looking at the right things and you're getting to the answering all the questions because you have a very, you know, a very uh, uh, defined decision maker group, right? Um, but uh, as a fund, you know, it's different. And what I've also found is that a lot of companies, um, you know, like I guess to put it to you this way, all the companies that we funded in our fund have, you know, all of them have been looking for a venture fund to fund them. They, they were not looking for a family office to fund them, right? Whereas I've seen other startups that look for family offices to fund them, right? And so the, everybody plays a different role in the market. I'm not trying to knock one side or the other family office versus this or that, you know, it's, it's everybody kind of plays in the market. Increasingly, family offices are being more and more sophisticated and they're trying to do more and more in-house and avoid the fee load of working with a venture fund. But they're, you know, the ones that really do that well, in my experience, are very, very few and far between, you know, and most of the time they have dedicated staff. I'm sorry, that was like super long winded. I keep trying to like hedge myself and stuff. You know, but no, great. It's great. Let's let's take that. I, I got the point on that one. Let's jump over to New Orleans because I think there's a super an interesting conversation. I know I'm narrowing a little bit the scope of the geography you're really servicing and talking about New Orleans, but it's I think it's the closest hub, fair to say. Um, when we talk about niche venture markets on a national scale, the stuff TechCrunch is focusing on and all the other great tech rags out there, they're talking about Miami and Austin. New Orleans smaller, right? I, I looked it up before the call. 2010 census, three hundred less than 350,000 folks. If you combine Lafayette and, uh, like the, I'm sorry, the, New or- the greater New Orleans region, I think is a million. Okay. I was going to ask you if there was a broader MSA there. That's right. But if you look just within the city, it's, yeah, 350. Same thing in Baton Rouge. It's like Baton Rouge has got a good slug of people. You know, there's actually been talks of, you know, I don't know. I mean, it's just I hear in conversations about people saying, oh, we should, you know, combine New Orleans and Baton Rouge in a single MSA because then we'll get bigger numbers. And it's like, why don't you focus on bottom up economic growth and then let the numbers <laughs> take care of themselves? That's just me. That's just me. Right. Okay. But, but not a huge population overall relative to on a city level, right? Not small, but more medium. Uh, and not everyone's going to be in tech. How large is the tech ecosystem? What's, you know, how do you measure and think about what's going on down there in terms of scale? No, that's right. So there, it's not huge. Um, there's a lot of aspiring people and there's a lot of people adjacent to it, right? There's been a couple of wins within the state and, uh, you know, and, and this, you know, there's been a lot, there's been a couple of wins within the state, a couple within new Orleans that are pretty advanced, uh, you know, Turbo Squid just sold for $75 million after, I forget how old they are. Uh, they've been around for a number of years. Um, you know, and then um, I think Lucid, uh, Lucid's gotten pretty big, has a bunch of employees. And um, I think uh, Level Set has raised all the way through a Series C. Uh, you know, they're more traditional SaaS. Um, and, uh, you know, they're formerly Z-Lean. Um, and then there's, uh, you know, and then Roselia is growing very fast. And that's one of our portfolio companies in, in our current fund. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, you know, I think they're on a good track to be really big. Um, (laughs) but yeah, I I think, uh, but as far as the tech ecosystem goes, I mean, it's not super big. I mean, you're right. You know, and so that's, that's a lot of, um, you know, it has a lot of very high culture elements to it Mm. that a lot of tech companies have, right. I mean, New Orleans is one of like one of the most, uh, notorious, uh, very culturally driven cities, right. 
Um, you know, New Orleans used to be a big energy hub as well. Um, a lot of the energy from there left for Houston as soon as, you know, Texas had basically no income tax. And, uh, and so a lot of, you know, Texas engineered their entire economic system around being very favorable for you know, energy production extraction. So, you know, New Orleans lost a lot of the domicile businesses that were there. I mean, Louisiana, we have one Fortune 500 company and it's Entergy. Um, and, uh, you know, Entergy's, you know, it's a utility company, you know. Um, but yeah, and so uh, there's, uh, there's a number of companies, there's a number of like nonprofit initiatives. I mean, just trying to talk about New Orleans in its own, you know, so, um, you know, there's a handful of like these, uh, it's, they run accelerator programs, some run incubators, some do all these different things, but for the vast majority of them, they're all like nonprofit organizations, right? Which is, I guess, you know, in my view, I'd like to see more for-profit incubators, accelerators. I think that would do a lot to drive the right incentives, right? Right now, a lot of these groups are chasing over each other for, for, uh, for fundraising to exist, mm. you know, and it's tough. That's a hard model to run while at the same time trying to support uh, entrepreneurs and uh, early stage companies. You know, um, really kind of the initial tech boom, if you will, that we had in New Orleans was, uh, was what a lot of people attribute to post-Katrina uh, revitalization, right? So post-Hurricane Katrina, right? There was a huge washout, right? A lot of damage and then a lot of stuff started getting fixed. The city started bouncing back and coming back. Um, and, you know, and on the tail end of that, right, cost of living was very low, uh, high cultural epicenter, you know, and uh, and so it became this magnet for a lot of people. Right. And they had a couple, you know, and so a handful of tech companies were starting up around that time. That was like right around the time my partner, Mark, uh, came back from Silicon Valley, started doing his legal practice. And um, and so, you know, it's kind of this interesting, um, you know, uh, nexus was sort of formed. Right. Um, all of the state level uh, economic development programs are kind of localized in Baton Rouge, right? And some of them have state mandates, but most of the time they kind of really focus around the Baton Rouge area. So Baton Rouge has kind of got its own thing going on. You know, they tie into LSU a lot. New Orleans ties into Tulane a lot. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, then Lafayette has its own new thing going on. Oh, I say new. Uh, you know, this is funny. I don't know if you realize this. I didn't. But um, the uh, University of Louisiana and Lafayette. Uh, has the second oldest computer science program in the country. Huh. huh. Yeah. The oldest yeah. one was MIT. Oh, interesting. And are, are they pumping out a lot of engineers or is it? Yes. Okay. Interesting. Where are those folks going? Are they staying in the area when they graduate or are they getting poached out? Yeah. I mean, uh, so there's a couple of big companies that have done like these economic development deals in, in Lafayette. They don't get nearly as much publicity as you see in New Orleans. Um, I think CRI is one. Um, uh, you know, Baton Rouge is a couple of gaming companies like the EA and some of those have, uh, have like spots in Baton Rouge, um, but, uh, IBM too. Um, but then, uh, in Lafayette, it's, um, it's a lot of engineering, but I mean, people don't always stay there, you know, um, you know, waiter sucked up a ton of them. Uh, you know, waiter was acquired by a SPAC, uh, I forget a couple of years ago, they've been beaten down. Uh, in the public equity market, I think uh, I don't understand why, and I think they're doing pretty well. Um, but you know, there's a food delivery company. Um, but you know, they were based there. They had um, they have uh, at one point they had like two thousand employees. Um, Hal, let me jump in here for a second. So you mentioned earlier that a lot of energy company, a, a lot of the energy business moved to Texas when they changed their tax laws. 
Yeah, I think so. I think when, that's how it goes. Yeah. When, when that bounced out, what what sectors have been kind of predominant? When you're looking at investing, are there strands? Is it e-commerce? Is there still energy stuff happening? What's what's common down there? Yeah, so it's it's interesting. You, know, you ask like if you were to ask certain people in certain circles um, in some of these, um, you know, call it quasi-economic development nonprofit groups, they would gravitate towards you know, they'd say energy manufacturing. Um, you know, some chemistry, uh, and then, um, and then food and beverage, uh, are kind of big staples, you know, um, I, I would say that, you know, me personally, you know, my, my thing is like, I, I think we've still haven't quite found our niche yet. You know, we still haven't right. like quite, we haven't broke, we haven't broken out of the energy emphasis, right? Louisiana is still tied to a lot of energy. Right. Uh, as far as GDP goes, as far as um, job creation, a lot of it, it revolves around manufacturing and manufacturing related to energy. You know, it's it's like, you know, God forbid we do anything outside of energy, it seems, um, you know, and, uh, and that's, you know, that, that's one of the things that I, I, I preach and I get very preachy about, uh, you know, so forgive me. But, you know, I, I think that what I'm doing and what people like me are trying to do within the state and finding ways to diversify our economy and finding ways to invest and support new emerging businesses and helping cultivate a local startup ecosystem is the best, most efficient way to really drive future economic growth and really drive, um, you know, really attract people in for our values of culture and for a lot of the outdoorsy things that we have to do. I mean, tech, you know, I said the only thing that I joke about all the time. So the best thing we can do is probably legalize pot. And then like, you know, then we have legalized pot. We have lots of outdoors activities and, uh, and it's a party city with uh, lots of deep culture, like and co- great, low cost right. of living. Like I mean, it's like it's like the missing part of the trifecta or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, you know, it's a, it's it's kind of goes in there, right? But you know, I think uh, yeah. I'm sorry. What what are what what is the state doing and the the local community doing to kind of attract and develop the startup community? I mean, I, I did a little research before this. I, I bumped onto NewOrleansTech.com. And one of the things they referenced was some tax incentives. Um, what are the tax incentives for people listening who are thinking about, wait, we're post-COVID, remote world. Maybe I'll hole up in New Orleans and build, build my business down there. What do they have to look forward to? Yeah, so there's a handful of really nice tax incentive programs. You know, um, you know I, I, before, before I kind of talk about it, I'd say the danger of that from an investor perspective is to just consider that like it, it's tax incentives don't make a bad deal good. You know, they make good deals better. That's the only thing to say. Um, you know, for, and that's, that's how I view it. And that's how my partners view it. You know, it's like, hey, we get some awesome. Right. That's not why we're investing. But but in essence, right, um, what you can get. So angel investor tax credit was uh, is kind of one of the big ones. I think you can get 25 percent of your investment cost back in tax in tax credits. Right. So if That's you put a million dollars in a company, you'll get two hundred fifty thousand dollars in tax credits, you know, provided you find all the qualifications and all that, all the government stuff. Um, you know, and uh, and then you uh, then they have the uh, technology commercialization tax incentive. Um, you know, where basically if you're using a state-based uh, research institution and you're commercializing some innovation into, uh, you're bringing it into commerce, then there's some incentives related to some of the research. Um, and then there's uh, digital media tax credits, right? It's why we have a handful, it's why we have a couple of decent sized development shops, 
to basically track hourly how many you know development hours you have and you could submit for a rebate you know and um that's been a very juicy incentive for a long time you know that's that was a big carrot for uh, dxc technologies and why they came and posted up in new Orleans was that that and then the the employees and uh and jobs program that that uh that the state economic development has um, and then they had another one, uh, research and development tax credits. If you work with one of the research institutions and you commission some research projects or whatever it is, then those, those will work. I mean, I'd say that those I've seen happen more with chemistry and hard technology, nanotechnology related businesses, right, um, right. and affiliation with, you know, a university or two. Um, and then, uh, you know, they have a couple of tech transfer programs as well in New Orleans, uh, you know, from Tulane and some of Loyola, some of UNO. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, there's, there's a handful of startups that are kind of in those arenas. You know, okay, so the, the, the region's got some development talent, some hubs for that. It's got a great quality of life, a low cost of living. Uh, there's some tax incentives that sound pretty material, particularly the angel one sounded pretty. pretty oh, it's, it's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, who are you seeing in, down there investing with you? Is it mainly local folks, other micro VCs, other family offices, or are you seeing, you know, VCs from Austin or Atlanta coming in, or are you seeing folks from Silicon Valley, Los Angeles, New York coming in? All of the above. Yes. All of the above. They're all showing up, and they're, you know, it used to be that a lot of VCs didn't want to invest outside of their their geography because they'd have to deal with the board meetings. And it wasn't, that was before the remote days. I don't know how remote's going to totally change that culture. Um, but I assume it's kind of opened up a little bit, the ability to invest in different geographies conveniently. Yeah, I mean, so that, that's what we've been seeing increasingly. So, you know, they've always like, you know, funds from outside of the area have always kind of tinkered, you know, have always like been in the, the periphery, right? Like I've always like, oh, hey, you know, I'm coming to town. It would be great to grab lunch and, you know, see what you guys are looking at and working on, right? Um, you know, there's a deal that we did that had, they had raised a lot of money from New York and uh, from some, you know, we'll call it mid-sized firms. And they liked that I was local, right? They said, mm-hmm. you know, if we That's need helpful. you to go drive by the office and make sure they're working, let me, you know, we'll give you a call. And I was like, you know. But, um, you know, so it, uh, that's what we're finding is that we're working really well with a lot of funds that have an interest in, um, in kind of, you know, just looking out, branching out a little bit, you know. Um, but yeah, geography has not been the same. Um, you know, and, and it's a good question. Like, I, it's, that's a good, uh, it's another good question is like, really, how many, you know, are, are virtual board meetings going to be the norm from now on? I mean, they were starting to become the norm even before COVID. I don't know, I don't know yeah. what yeah. you've seen, but I mean, I was definitely seeing that with a couple of companies anyway. Yeah. You know? More often than it used to be. That's for sure. I think this, the, you know, video chat used to be crappy, right? You couldn't have a reliable signal, you get dropped. And now it's pretty reliable. So I, I just feel like the timing of that with COVID and people kind of figuring out remote, all of mine are virtual right now. All of them. Yeah. I, um, and it's perfectly fine. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm with you. I, uh, I have kind of like craved to do one in person, you know, mm-hmm. um, or at least do one, you know, like um, after we closed... Uh, the last deal we did after we closed that one, we, um, you know, I was like, Hey, look, you know, let's, uh, let's get together and do an in-person board meeting. And then we could do virtual after that. I just want to get everybody in the same room together first, you know? Yeah. And just yeah, like establish the cadence, establish the relationships, kind of solidify, you know, because like, you have that initial post-closing first board meeting kind of like, 
Yeah, which, and you're chatting and it becomes a little more personal and human. Right, right. Yeah. And so, you know, there's things I miss about it too, you know, seeing people. I mean, of course, you know, you know, most of the time I'm sitting on boards that other people are flying in for, right? I'm not right. the one having to go out. So, of course, I can, you know, I like that. You know, it's fine for me. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. So, the, the, the region has a lot to offer, right? It's growing. You're, whether you know it or not, I'm sure there's other people who would kind of claim some of this title, but you're kind of positioned as one of the godfathers of the region, putting a lot of effort in early, which is cool. I think you're going to have a lot of impact. What does it need? What does it need? What does New Orleans need, that whole region down there? What, what, what needs to be better to kind of take it up a notch? And, you know, I watched a little anecdote. I watched uh, New York. I would say the second, third leg of New York. You know, people said this before on the, on the show, have a short memory in tech. But New York was doing a lot of stuff in probably the 80s and definitely the 90s. And I got involved in 2006 on the venture side. And it has come such a long way since then. Drastic change. Exponential change. But it's, it's putting together the infrastructure of kind of a, a whole community and culture and training, all these pieces. What, what's needed down there and how can the folks listening to this help? Right. Um, so... You know, one of the things that we've seen and, you know, we've kind of come to the conclusion is that what we really need is we need like a culture of doers, right? We need people in our markets who actually go and do things, right? Let's not talk about it. Let's not commission a study. Let's not research this. Let's not like flirt with the idea of it. Let's do it, you know? And so, you know, we believe that some of it is that there may be some misperception or just a risk aversion to going and doing something or trying something, you know, but it's, it's, it's broadly, you know, broadly kind of intended, right? Cause you know, I mean, being a founder CEO is very hard, right? It's not an easy job. Um, you know, I mean, the bigger your company gets, I think uh, the, the, the challenges change, but you know, it's not easy. It's never easy. If it was easy. Everybody would do it. Right. Right. But when you say we need a culture of doers, Founders and CEOs who are moving the ball forward, they are doers. Who are you talking about? Is it you need more founders and CEOs or there's other people around the ecosystem that aren't doing? So I would say that there are some founders who are not doers. And some mm. things that we see is that they're not doers. And there's a, there's a big difference, right? It's like, yeah, I mean, you may have left and may have started a company. Um, but I mean, are you really operating a lifestyle business that's masquerading as a startup? Are you really running the business for any purposes other than to, you know, I guess, keep kicking the can down the road so your rich investor doesn't lose their shirt, right? Mm -hmm. And and I think some of that comes from, you know, so I I guess there's a long life, uh, there's there's a lot of, let's say I wouldn't say this, there's there's a long uh, lifespan to some companies that should have been quickly recycled. Right. Mm. And it's like, it's not that it's a bad business. It's not that it's a wrong business. It's just like the timing, right? The, the effort that it requires, the energy has to go into it or, um, or the funding's not there for that business. Right. Or maybe it's just not a fundable company. Right. And it's on life support because, you know, one or two people put money in and they're forcing them to figure it out. Right. You have a lot of zombies up on. You know, companies that seem to be raising money constantly with no progress. Is that pressure coming from the investors who are kind of putting good money after bad because they don't want to lose an, write down an investment? Or is it the founders not driving or both? We call these companies the walking dead, by the way. We have a there's, Yeah, there's a lot of reasons, right? And it's like, I, I think that some of these businesses can 
get on a really good path for venture like growth. But I think I think really what you need to come to grips with or what people need to come to grips with is like, look, if, if you're not going to be a hyper growth company, then you're not a venture company and not a venture backed or venture backable company. You are a lifestyle business. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Right. Same thing goes with like, hey, you did your best to figure this out. If you can go and try and sell the company for some amount of money because you have some amount of value, and you know, sure, it's not it's not a hundred million dollars, it's not fifty million dollars. Maybe it's you know three, maybe it's two, but right, it's something. Right. You know, you do that, and then you recycle the talent. You recycle, you get people excited about the next opportunity. The founder can take those lessons and replicate or learn or reinvent. Exactly. A lot of those things are what I see is that you know, I, that to me would would kind of fall in some of that category. Another thing too is like. There's a lot of people out there that talk a big game that say, oh, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. And nobody does squat. You know, um, you know, I, you know, and some people who are listening that may know me, they were like, oh, you've done that to me. It's like, if I did, it wasn't on purpose. I promise, you know. Okay. But when you say they're having on squat and talk a big game, what is that? It's say they're going to put money in and don't. Is it yes. build a company and don't? Yes. Like, what are we, what are we, it's all these things. Okay. All right. Yeah. So um, it's, yeah, things like that. I mean, it's it's like it's a lack of like really trying to put some gusto behind it, really move it forward, really put your heart and soul into it, or halfway do it, you know. Or oh, I'm going to do this and keep my foot in one door and the other. Or um, why do you think that's missing? You know, you're describing that as a. You know, I think that dynamic is probably everywhere. Just a question in what ratios and what proportions. But you're saying as though it's more common maybe than other places. Why is that? You see, it's a good question. I don't know. You know, and maybe it's because there's not a lot of what I would kind of classify as institutional focused venture, right? Mm. So maybe like, hey, we've got deadlines. We've got things we've got to take care of. This can't sit. Like, sorry, but we, we, we have to move on. We have to do something else. Or, you know, hey, look, we'll support you and try and help you find a job after this. Or, you know, well, you know, I mean, just anything like that. Right. Like, right. Um, you know, one of the things I loved about, um, you know, so Brad Feld's book, um, mm. uh, what was that? The first one that he did, there was um, you know, a lot of people talk that got everybody all excited. It was um, deals. No, it, was, it wasn't deals. That's a good one. I, I know that one. It's, um, it's like startup communities, I think. Startup communities. Okay. And, um, and in that one, you know, like one of the things they did was they would do like uh, almost a funeral for companies that didn't make it, right? I think like that's that kind of cultural element just, it sounds fantastic to me. I mean, I, I think, I think it's like, look, you know, you tried, you did your best, you hustled and you worked very hard, but like, there's no shame in hanging up the towel. Like, right, you know, right. that's just, that's just part of this game. If you want to play in this world and you want to be in this industry, this kind of segment of the market, and that's just a fact of life, you know? Nobody likes to do it, but I mean, there's no reason it has to be all or nothing. You know, there are places along the way that are varying degrees of success. You know, I mean, how many people, I mean, you know, there's, I, I can tell you that there's a handful of founders that that we've come, that, you know, that we work with that it's not their first company. And their first company wasn't a smashing success, right? Right. right. And, you know, it's just part of that journey. You know, it's iterative like anything else. So, you know, I think, I think. That's part of it. You know, I think part of the issue, too, is that what I found is not just Louisiana, but it's also other markets that emerging startup ecosystems have, um, you know, a lot of times are filled with individuals that will celebrate mediocrity um, if it suits their needs. Right. So, you know, uh, some of these ragtag consultants or some people who 
do a lot of uh, consulting work or work with a lot of uh, early stage companies, I mean, you know, a lot of times they're not they're not trying to pick the best clients, right? And but they still a lot of those individuals will get out there and talk about it in public and represent themselves as being a leader in the ecosystem or leaders of the ecosystem. A lot of times they aren't, right? They're they're working with the only clients they can get. The most legitimate startups and founders are the ones that are, I mean, they're out there doing it, right? They're, you know, they're hustling, they're making it work, and they're being chased, right? And make no mistake, you know, most of the deals we're doing, we're competing, you know, and uh, we're competing with other firms. And, you know, and we win because of relationships, because of experience, and because we really try and do our best to help founders, you know, and, you know, and, and we work well with others, you know, we're not big enough to take a whole round, you know, that's mm-hmm. an RMO anyway. Well, what's your message for VCs listening in other geographies or local? How can they help? What's your ask? I think, I think that there's a lot of ways to do things together. And I think there's a lot of ways to work together and to support one another, you know, um, you know, as competitive as the industry gets, I think that there's usually some solution that everybody can benefit from or mm-hmm. together with. I think that the more exposure that our companies have to legitimate companies on the coasts and partnership deals and relationships, co-selling, reselling, you know, integrations, whatever, those things really make a big difference, you know. There's, um, you know, and it's, you know, I mean, a lot of times integrations in those deals, I mean, you know, we've all seen it that, you know, the, the companies that are like really onto something, really firing on all cinder, cylinders and are really going to, you know, are really the hot deal, you know, they don't have to chase those deals. But like there are good companies that might not necessarily be in that ultimate super deluxe star class that are, you know, that, you know, if you give them a little bit of assistance or maybe, you know, I mean, there are a lot of good companies, you know, there's tax incentives, all those things too. So, I mean, you know, I'd say that like, hey, you know, give me a call. I mean, you know, I'd love to help. I'd love to see what I can do to help because, I mean, I want to encourage more people to, you know, to do things because I think it's part of long-term, um, long-term value of our strategy. I mean, our strategy is great for now and, uh, you know, our companies are fantastic, but, you know, we need to continue to, redeploy and reallocate and innovate and all of these things and we need to work with people from across the country across across the world i mean that's that's how this stuff works it doesn't work if you're in isolation hal uh this has been insightful and you're talking about the future now and i'd I'd love to follow that thread for a second what do you see as the future of cali capital where where do you see the firm in 10 years how does it evolve yeah well i mean we've already evolved a good bit um, you know, we continue to develop and build, um, you know, but I mean, we want to continue to focus on this, on this thread, on this niche, you know, we want to develop, uh, you know, we want to do our part. We want to work with founders who, you know, who are really going to be doers, who are going to work hard, who are going to give and really try and lean into, uh, into the marketplace, you know, and, you know, our strategy is really focused geographically now, you know, for, for a lot of reasons. You know, but I mean, we're we're looking at companies and deals, you know, outside of Louisiana. We're looking all over the place. You know, I have, I have a couple of portfolio companies in New York, actually. Um, you know, but it just it just really is. Um, I'd really like to see more people working together and it being less of this winner take all mentality. You know, 
And I think that, uh, and I think that how we interact with the market and how we continue to try and push the ball forward, at least with our companies and helping our companies by connecting them and having them work with other companies that are not maybe necessarily locally uh, based, exposing them to things outside of the market. You know, those are the things that lead to kind of compounding growth. So, I mean, for us, it's really keeping the ball moving in the direction that we're pushing, right? And, um, and kind of expanding from there, expanding on that and really trying to drive home, um, you know, a lot of this stuff that leads to, uh, you know, to really benefit for everybody. I mean, that's, that's a big part of it, you know, is that, you know, the thing is, is that this is, you know, you know, you know, the market is a wild and unwieldy thing, right? And, you know, you have to do your best to work within its confines and to work within rational thought and not take enormous risk, right? And so there's always a balance and there's always a fine line that everybody toes and really trying to, you know, figure out the direction of their business, but it's not a zero sum game, right? And I think that's one of the biggest problems that I see in the marketplace. And so, you know, I think that our goal is to really continue to drive the ball forward, be a leader where we can and where people will have us, right? And, you know, we've got plenty of stuff to do, you know, not, yeah. Yeah, I'm not looking for new stuff to do, but, you know, I genuinely want people to succeed, you know, and just because I can't work with them doesn't mean that I don't want them to succeed, you know? And so, you know, the, our future is going to be continuing our model, continuing to build upon what we've established and continue to expand, you know? And, um, you know, obviously working more with people like you, Mark, and, uh, and, uh, and really trying to figure out what's the right ways that we can have cross-portfolio collaboration, what's the ways that we can work together and, you know, make everybody win. I mean, there's winnable scenarios for everybody. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. not a zero-sum game. So, you know, I don't know. I'm kind of like, I'm still stuck on my previous topic and answering my question of the future. But, you know, I don't know how succinct you wanted me to be on that. But No, it's great. How, look. Uh, I think you and I share a core belief that innovation and entrepreneurship drive socio-political, economic values and success. And so I think what you're doing is not just a great business opportunity, but a social good. So thank you for doing it. Keep it up. No, absolutely. I mean, the, the way I tell you, know, just to be clear, I feel like I owe it to the record to say it. But, you know, um, and I say this to my investors is that, you know, look, Long term, if we do a good job doing what we do, then all of these things come to fruition. These things have a much greater probability or chance of occurring, right? Um, but it all stems from strong returns, you know, minimizing risk and working with founders who are going to be really dedicated, devoted and running real businesses and share vision, right? Those are the things that, you know, I mean, if we don't have returns then none of this matters, right? It's all moot. So, you know, that's, that's the way I look at it. Hal, thanks for being on. Hey, you got it, man. Let me know if you want to go fishing. I'd love to. (laughs) Not kidding. (laughs) kidding. (laughs) Well, that was great. I love learning about the venture scene along the third coast and the Mississippi River Valley. Sounds like an innovation hub to keep an eye on. I bet you a lot's going to happen down there. If you liked what you heard, please hook us up with a like or a five-star review. And feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. And to hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any major podcast platform. 
Just search for Innovation with Mark Peter Davis. <laughs>